Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Nika Mashu, co-founder and CEO of Ruby. Ruby is turning carbon emissions into carbon-negative textiles for the fashion industry. They are working on their first prototype to provide a carbon-negative, zero-water, zero-land alternative to viscose to decarbonize the fashion industry's supply chain. We have a great discussion in this episode about Nika's origin story and what it was that led to the founding of the company, which she did with her twin sister, Layla, by the way. The initial problem that they set out to solve, what it is that makes the fashion industry so hard to decarbonize and where those emissions are coming from. We talk about how they landed on the approach that they did, where they're at today, what the steps are to make it from the lab to wide-scale production. We talk about the sources of capital. We talk about the business model. We talk about some of the barriers and hurdles that they've overcome and that they anticipate needing to overcome down the road. And we also talk about the potential impact that they can have if they're successful and the value proposition to the fashion industry and what's motivating so many large fashion brands to be so interested in what Ruby is building. Nika, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jason. Really excited to be here. Excited to have you. You were telling me before the show, your first podcast ever. Yes. <laughs> it's been fun so far, our first few minutes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, I would say it's a tough act to follow, but it, but uh, since it's the first ever, it'll be the best ever, no matter how it goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was excited for, for this one. Uh, on the surface, it, a story that's interesting on, on a number of, of fronts. One, you are a young entrepreneur. You, you started Ruby Labs with your twin sister. It is in an area that is 
a problem area from uh, an emission standpoint and in some other ways uh, as well. And you uh, have a potential solution that that sounds pretty innovative and like it could have a big impact if it works. So it's it's not an area that I know a lot about, but it's one I'm really interested to learn more about. And uh, and therefore, I'm grateful that you made the time to come on and, and share your story. Yes, amazing. Excited to walk through the whole world of Ruby. <laughs> the fun one. Uh, great. Well, for starters, and, and should I say Ruby or Ruby Labs, by the way? Ruby is good. Okay. Uh, well, what's Ruby? Yes, Ruby focuses on decarbonizing supply chains focused first on fashion. So we turn carbon emissions into carbon negative materials using a technology we've developed that's inspired by how trees work. So trees breathe in CO2. And then they turn that CO2 into all their useful components and molecules. We take a similar approach where we're able to um, take CO2 and, and turn it into all the important molecules we use as a society for our most important products, like cellulose, which we use for textiles. And so that's really our first chapter is making textiles that are carbon negative and water and land neutral using a completely new production process. If I think about a company like 12, for example, that's converting carbon into valuable you know, car parts and, and other products like that, is it similar but pointed at, at apparel? Or how should I think about Ruby? Like, are, are, you a, are you a carbon to value company? Are you a fashion company? Like, how how'd you characterize yourself? If, and if the answer is you can't put us in a box, that's okay. Because I mean... <laughs> I feel like that's my answer for a number for like MCJ. Like, what are we? Well, you can't put us in a box. We're like some of this and some of that. We're like a mashup. Totally. <laughs> well, I I would definitely say you can't put Ruby in a box. I think we have a really unique vision for the company that we hope to be. But maybe one of the closest things would be a carbon to value sort of company where we're building a platform beyond just fashion, beyond just a first chapter in a certain market that can turn CO2 into materials in a carbon negative water and land neutral way. And I'd say the difference between us versus some other carbon to value companies, we have a unique technology that's powered by enzymes, which are you know, nature's most powerful molecules, in my opinion, they're so cool. And they have so many benefits that we leverage in our technology that helps us achieve carbon negativity and really high energy efficiency, low cost, and be able to make natural products, which some of these other carbon to value technologies can't necessarily do just because of the the type of technology they use. So we're focused on making nature-based molecules, so biomolecules that are found in nature that we use really heavily as a planet today, as a carbon-based planet. So there's a big potential market there. Enzymes help us get there because they can make these complex products and molecules in a way that other tech can't. And that's what we're building Ruby as a tech platform based on. It's a platform that can create really valuable, important products that today are produced in a really unsustainable, devastating way through this process that can be symbiotic with the planet and planet positive. I was going to ask you about the origin story of the company, but before we even go there, uh, I mean, how how did you go down this path to to begin with? Uh, I mean, did it come from a planet motivation or fashion motivation or entrepreneurship motivation or yeah, I guess what? How did you find yourself like share a bit about your personal story and then we'll get into the origin story for the company? Perfect. Yeah. Well, 
I would say it's a mix of all of those things. And it really feels like a lifetime in the making. I grew up in Northern California, surrounded by a lot of nature, was really immersed in it at a young age. And my family has a long history, you know, back, uh, my grandparents and my parents back in Iran, before they immigrated here, they had orchards and farms and stuff like that, that I always heard stories about. And I think early on, that got me close to nature. And then I think there were a few moments in my life early on where I became really enthralled by science and how nature is just powered by this incredible sort of below the surface power of science. So one of those was my uncle, who's a scientist. When I was like 10 years old, he used to quiz me on science questions. And he asked me, what are trees made out of and where do they come from? And it seems like such a simple question, but it has stuck with me since I've been 10 years old because of just so how my, like, it's mind blowing. My son turned 10 today. So I know right where your headspace was nice. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you should ask him this question. I will. Yeah. When he gets home from school, I, I will, I will ask him. So where do trees come from? Tell me the question again. I want to get it right. Where do the trees come from and how are they made? Is that, is that it? Yeah. Where do trees come from? <laughs> and at the time I was like, well, you know, water, nutrients in the soil, the sun, I guess. It took me a while to realize that they come from, you know, the carbon base. So they come from CO2 in the air. And that absolutely blew my mind that all these incredible stoic trees that I loved so much at that age were once air. And they grew into these massive, incredible trees that are so complex and so incredible. And I think that was one of the initial sparks of my love of materials and material science. And I continued on that path of of science and nature. When I was 15 years old, I published my first scientific paper in artificial photosynthesis, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And it was coming from this like constant inspiration of mine to use technologies that I found interesting and inspiring to unlock abundance and prosperity for people and the planet. And at that age, it was just such an incredible concept to me to be able to run photosynthesis artificially and provide value and change the way we do things to be more sustainable and planet positive. And then I continued on that path for like 10 years since then, working in different research labs, science research labs. So things like computational materials for energy storage and, and solar, micro wind turbines, sustainable polymers and polymers for tissue engineering, and, and some more cool opportunities that I had to work in different research labs throughout high school and college. And it was just incredible to be on the forefront of so many frontiers at the time around, you know, the new age of energy and seeing what we could potentially innovate to change the way we do things and completely solve a major global problem or you know, help people on the planet. So that was always amazing to me. I ended up going to Berkeley and got a simultaneous degrees in uh, materials engineering and business. It was sort of this continued interest in using materials, innovations, bringing them to market, solving big problems. I was even on a solar car team uh, in college where we built and raced solar powered cars. I was the driver, which was fun on the Formula One track. <laughs> it was a good time to see um, you know, renewable technology being applied actually to the real world and, and seeing how we could optimize the system and, and make it a reality. Throughout college, I 
worked on a few different ventures. I always knew that I wanted to build things and be an entrepreneur and start start um, a company that could really make an impact. But graduated college, was a product manager for a few years. I didn't feel quite ready to just go all in on entrepreneurship yet. So then it took me a few years, but I think COVID was really a big moment where I had time to sort of have an existential crisis and realize that (laughs) I know exactly what my personal mission is, you know, using technology and bringing innovations to market that can you know, create prosperity and abundance for people on the planet. That's something that has always been like, I knew it was my core passion and what I wanted to do. And so during COVID, I was like, why am I not doing that right now? I have so many ideas and so much potential, like it's just time to go all in. I think, and at that same time, you know, 2020, it was like, it felt like the end of the world. <laughs> it was like all the the fires um, globally, at the beginning of the year, and then growing up in California, every year there's worse and worse wildfires during the summer. And so it was like, this is my mission. I can do this. I feel responsible to just go all in. So that was sort of what led me to starting Ruby. And then maybe the one other thing I'll say is uh, throughout that whole time, the sort of parallel life that I led um, was I grew up in the fashion industry. So my uncle, uh, Manny Mashouf, is the founder and CEO of BB Stores, uh, spelled B-E-B-E. You might have like seen it in a mall or something. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it's a big global women's clothing brand. And that really gave me the insight and opportunity to see a business being built, a really outside of the box new concept, which BB was at the time when it was starting, forming, and then also getting exposure to designers, merchants, the whole supply chain, runway shows. Uh, It was just such an incredible upbringing for me that I am so grateful for. And I fell in love with fashion. But then, of course, as a scientist, I knew the environmental impact that is devastating, truly. But as a scientist entrepreneur, I knew that we could change it. And it's so ripe for disruption and so heavily demanded by the industry. So those were sort of all the things that I lived through that really, <laughs> that's why I say it feels like a lifetime in the making and why Ruby just really resonates with everything that I've done and, and my personal mission. So I understand that there were these kind of stepping stones along the way. And then during the pandemic, a switch kind of flipped in your head and you're like, well, here's my passion and why aren't I doing that? And you, you never know what life's going to throw at you and there's no time like the present, but but how did that translate from, okay, it's time to do something in this general area to what sounds like a pretty, well, now, I mean, it's a pretty specific, well-articulated idea slash product slash company and funding and team. And so how did you get there? Well, it really was a journey. So um, great to be on this My Climate Journey podcast and share that. <laughs> but First, I'll say that you know throughout all this time and and my journey to even starting Ruby, um, I've always kept uh, an idea book. I see myself as an inventor, and I'm constantly thinking about things that I want to create and build. So, you know, that was a whole bunch of things. It wasn't necessarily like just Ruby or very specifically Ruby, but there were concepts that I'd been thinking about, uh, especially as synthetic biology around alternative, you know, proteins was at that time like becoming more and more of a big big deal and more popular 
I had been thinking about concepts in the space for a while. And then throughout all of my research and materials and understanding that most of our materials are carbon-based as a carbon-based planet, it was just all these things coming together to sort of click. You know, we have this massive carbon emissions problem. It's devastating and we don't know how to solve it. But at the same time, our planet is carbon-based and we have an incredible carbon cycle that for the longest time has worked really well. <laughs> so what? it's more of really an opportunity. How can we unlock those carbon emissions as a new natural resource for making carbon negative materials and creating a world where human prosperity and economic growth are planet positive, which is the vision for Ruby, actually. <laughs> I think that was some of those were some of the sparks behind Ruby in terms of the idea. And then I really framed my attention on this carbon problem. How can we utilize CO2 to make carbon-based materials and combine some of my science background and some innovations of the time around fermentation and alternative meats to come up with this idea of, okay, let's use biology, but powered by some material science benefits to be able to turn CO2 into really impactful materials, but in a way that can be cost-effective and efficient and um, ultimately land on a carbon-negative product. You, you mentioned uh, before we started recording that you were pushing on this nights and weekends initially, and then as you started getting more traction, it became clearer and clearer that you couldn't not do this. Can you talk a little bit about what you were pushing on nights and weekends and when the switch flipped from a project to something that you couldn't not pursue as a company? Yeah, of course. And I think this is such a difficult decision. And I've seen it with some of my friends too, who are starting companies, like knowing when to go all in is such a huge and scary decision. So yeah, I was working full time as a product manager, had a really demanding job. And so it was a really tough period to be doing both at the same time. But what I was doing was doing customer interviews, prototyping the technology in a lab, and then also starting to talk to some other experts and investors in the space. And I ended up outlining as a, as a classic product manager would do, like the certain success criteria or metrics that I would use to check off when I should go all in on this. And it was successful lab prototype, you know, significant customer interest and investor interest that really signified that it was possible and also that there was a really large market potential that this could help solve a, a big problem for people. And once all those things came true, <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, with, with some help from my friends, actually, who pushed me, they're like, you need to go all in and do this, ended up quitting my job. And at that time, just going straight into fundraising for Ruby, which we didn't have any fundraising at the time. As it relates to the, to the product, when you were in the lab, did, did you were there a lot of different approaches you evaluated before you landed on uh, the one that you are going to market with? Or talk a little bit about that process. Of course, yeah. So I think my experience working in computational materials sort of framed my approach in a way that I did a lot of modeling um, before even getting into the lab. So compared many different possible technologies and their potential efficiency, what kind of products they could be making, all of that. and really narrowed it down onto our current technology, which sort of gets the best of both worlds in terms of fermentation on one side, using like living cells all the way to something like metal catalysis on the other side. 
our technology is sort of like best of all of those things, in my opinion, and allows us to make a really valuable product. It, it was some initial modeling and work, but then we landed on the tech. And um, of course, there was some uh, experimentation and figuring out how to actually create a successful prototype. It was not easy, but at, at that time, we did have a clear idea of the tech that was going to make this happen. What was the initial customer set that you were targeting and what was it that you were displacing? Yeah, so we talked to a lot of large fashion brands, you know, for example, H&M, Eileen Fisher, people on their sustainability teams and in their supply chain teams. And what we knew and and, uh, really validated from all of these interviews was that these major brands and the majority of major brands in fashion have set aggressive carbon reduction, carbon neutrality, or carbon negativity goals even over the next 10 to 30 years, but they don't have any clear path to achieving them. They don't know what solutions will help them get there. And um, you know the teams at these brands are working hard to identify those solutions, but carbon emissions are so entwined with the production of apparel that I mean, right now, you just can't be an apparel company and not have <laughs> crazy emissions. And the majority of it comes from textile production. And so we we were talking to brands and experts in the space. We really validated this need and problem where they felt like if they didn't have sustainability goals and actually achieve them, that they would you know, face significant risk as a business in terms of consumer engagement and revenue from their consumers all the way to actually um, being able to produce products. Like these companies are some of the largest consumers of things like cotton um, and other materials globally. And if climate change is happening to an extent where cotton can't grow as reliably um, or they can't get their materials, their business is facing a major threat. And fashion brands actually know this <laughs> and they, they study it and it's amazing how they understand the risks and are prioritizing finding solutions. So there is a strong demand, but not a lot of solutions out there that could actually take the requirements uh, and needs of fashion brands to heart in developing a solution. And so that's what we really focused on doing uh, was building a product that could meet all the needs of fashion brands that we know by growing up in the industry, uh, you know, quality, scalability, cost, they all need to be there. And then, of course, the sustainability factor that's going to make it carbon negative and be a turnkey sustainable supply chain they can just adopt and really be able to hit their sustainability goals. So I think it's a pretty often overlooked area of industry in terms of you know climate and sustainability. Fashion is the third most CO2 polluting supply chain on the planet. Um, and this is from a World Economic Forum and BCG report. Uh, last year, you know, when you look at the attention that it's getting from the climate community, it really doesn't reflect <laughs> that, you know, it's much more than any sort of freight or auto or transportation emissions. And there's just so much demand in the industry. So I don't know, I'm very passionate about this problem. We were seeing clear demand from brands, and that's why we decided to go um, all in on it. Can you talk a bit about the textile production process with Ruby and the textile production process without Ruby so that we can get a sense of how the Ruby process is different? There's a bunch of different types of textiles you might recognize, you know, cotton, viscose, or lyocell, 
polyester, etc. So some of those are natural materials and some of them are plastic-based materials. We focus on natural materials because we want to make a product that can you know, live in harmony with the planet and, and not pollute. So looking into um, some natural materials as a comparison, cotton and viscose today come from plants, whether it's the cotton plants or for viscose, it's trees. And basically the process is the raw material is grown and you know uses an insane amount of water, like 300 liters of water per kilogram of cotton and a lot of water for trees too. So the raw material is grown, it's harvested, it's processed down uh, mechanically and chemically into the inputs for fiber spinning. And so let's just narrow in on viscose. That wood pulp from trees is broken down and dissolved into a dissolved cellulose, which is this polymer uh, that's found in trees. And then after that, it is um, extruded through like a shower head sort of thing called a spinneret to make tiny fibers. Uh, then you get this fluffy material that you can then spin into yarns and then weave or knit into textiles. And then that becomes you know, the garments that we all use. And in the fashion industry, it's, so it's not actually the fashion brands that are doing this, right? Is it, uh, I mean, there, is, it, is it a supplier to the fashion brands that's actually doing this textile production process? Yes, it's, there's this massive global supply chain for the textile industry. So fashion brands typically don't own these um, manufacturing facilities this early on. So there'll be different manufacturers at this, these stages of production that turn the trees into wood pulp and then the next facility will turn that wood pulp into dissolved cellulose and then the fiber spinning, the yarn spinning, and then knitting or weaving. And then at that point, the material is transferred to a cut and sew facility of a fashion brand, which they may or may not own. But that's when that fabric becomes the end garments that they've designed for this season. <laughs> and so maybe now talk a bit about the Ruby process for uh, similar materials. What Ruby allows us to do is basically directly turn CO2 into the target um, molecules needed to make textiles. So we skip all of the plant growing and harvesting and um, and processing steps that contribute the majority of the CO2 impact across this um, supply chain. Uh, we directly turn CO2 into cellulose, which is a drop-in into the next steps, which are fiber spinning, yarn spinning, and textile manufacturing. Because we can directly make that um, molecule from CO2, we not only save a significant amount of carbon that would have been emitted by the traditional manufacturing process, we also can directly sequester the CO2 in the material and actually end up being net negative in emissions after considering things like energy use and transportation and, and other things like that as well. The difference is pretty significant. It allows us to sort of become resource independent. There's no land usage virtually, there's no water usage virtually, and uh, this carbon impact is negative. And so uh, putting aside the the emissions impact, just strictly from a performance standpoint, how does it perform versus the materials that you're um, displacing? So I think in this case, uh, viscose to, to speak with the, to stay consistent with, with this example. This is key. We actually make the same exact textiles that fashion brands are already using today. 
that designers and merchants know and love and consumers are already familiar with. We're not making uh, a new type of like bio material or whatever that has a lot of performance risks. And that's, again, coming from our background in the fashion industry, the problem isn't right now like material properties, it's the sustainability of the supply chain. And so we really wanted to focus on making the same materials that fashion brands are already using, but through a different, through reinventing the supply chain to be planet positive. So there's actually no real like product risk on the other side of performance or scalability or eventually cost. <laughs> um, it's really just changing the way that it's made. So it's a drop-in replacement. We use the same industrial manufacturing processes once the cellulose is made to turn it into textile. And, wh- and where do you get the CO2 from? We're pretty flexible on the source in terms of what the tech is actually able to do. We've tested it with direct air, just ambient air, uh, which has been successful all the way up to higher CO2 concentrations. So we can really be uh, choosy, I guess, with what we want to use. But the more efficient option and also the best business model for us, which we've determined is um, using waste stream CO2 from manufacturing facilities where we can provide a carbon removal service, as well as use a higher concentration CO2 that's already there that we don't need to compress or, or do anything with to get to higher efficiencies. So are you, are you partnering for that piece or, or are you actually doing the carbon removal yourselves? So our technology is capable of doing the carbon removal ourselves. We're working on those partnerships right now with facilities like textile mills, uh, energy facilities, food and beverage manufacturing facilities to determine like where our first pilots will be and, and test that out. As of now in our lab, we're, uh, we're using captured CO2 and just concentrated CO2 for our initial testing. But for the actual product and business model, we plan on um, capturing the CO2 because what our, it's what our technology is able to do and really helps us integrate better into the ecosystem. Uh-huh. And when it comes to special sauce as a company, so is the special sauce more on the material side or more on the capture side or both? And is there any other special sauce that I didn't mention? Yeah, well, I think our special sauce is really on this tech that covers carbon capture uh, all the way to utilization. Um, Like I mentioned before, we see it as a platform technology that um, we're starting first with cellulose and cellulosic materials like textiles, but it is, you know, applicable and scalable to other materials like proteins, lipids, uh, so you can imagine food, bioplastics, all the other you know biological macromolecules. We're excited for the future of Ruby beyond this first chapter, uh, and it really comes from this platform tech that we're developing that I think is one of our main secret sauces. And then I also really think that me and my twin sister's background in both science and fashion has helped us really understand this initial problem for this first chapter that we're tackling and and how we can build a product that going to be really game changing and gain traction and can help support the rest of the growth for the company. But it sounds like from initial go to market, the initial go to market is around a handful of materials specifically for fashion. And are you working with the fashion brands or with the uh, textile manufacturers? We're working with both. Our customers are the fashion brands, but we partner with manufacturing facilities building sort of like a network of manufacturers who can help us get from the cellulose to fiber to yarns uh, for the fashion brands. So we want to be independent in that way and that we have our own network of manufacturers for some post-processing, but we also work with the manufacturing 
supply chain for fashion brands as well. If they have a really specific supply chain where they really want to work with their partners, we're also flexible for that as well. Are you displacing the uh, existing suppliers? We are not displacing the manufacturing supply chain. Um, We would be displacing potentially the cellulose supply from deforestation or other plant sources. And what that helps save is a lot of the CO2 impact, water and land usage. So we would basically be a replacement for that cellulose pulp that today comes from trees. And it's with a caveat that I know very little about the fashion industry and the fashion industry supply chain, but it's surprising to me that your customers are the fashion brands and not the textile manufacturers, since it sounds like it sounds like the textile manufacturer's process will continue, but there's a subset of that process that you're enabling them to do in a way that's more environmentally friendly without compromising on performance. And we didn't get into cost yet, although you alluded to the fact that it might be more expensive, at least initially. But but why? Uh, help me understand, why are your customers the fashion brands and not the textile manufacturers? How does that work? Yeah, of course. So... It's an interesting supply chain today, but I think the important difference with our product and why the customer is the fashion brands is because it has a really unique value proposition in terms of end-to-end traceability, where we can confirm and own the full handoffs throughout the supply chain and validate the carbon negativity in a sense that it's sort of like this, we see ourselves as an ingredient brand. So it's more so than just an input cellulose that gets blended in with all other kinds of cellulose. It's really important for brands and for the value that we're developing that it can be validated that if they're sourcing a textile, that it's 100% ruby cellulose. And so in order to do that, we work with the fashion brands directly. They're our customers and uh, we use contract manufacturing in order to get to that end product. So if I'm hearing right, I'm going to say this as a statement, but it's really a question to test my <laughs> understanding. But is the fashion supply chain almost like the the fashion brand is the one that has the product vision and also chooses the ingredients and stuff, and then they find a contract manufacturer that can take those ingredients and make the recipe almost like a chef, but the chef doesn't select the ingredients. The chef takes the ingredients provided by the client and uh, and produces the recipe. Yeah. I love that example. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy for sure. Um, What fashion brands would create is maybe they have all these designs for their upcoming season. They produce tech packs, which specify all the details of like, let's say what a garment would be made of, how it would be made, this, this sort of like yarn size and what the source material is, all of that. And then they work with manufacturers to make it happen. They might have a portfolio of manufacturers that they work with regularly, but they're usually not you know, ones that they own, and they just sort of do this um, contract manufacturing. When they start using your ingredients instead of whatever ingredients you're displacing, does it necessitate them switching manufacturers and cultivating new relationships, or can they keep working with whoever they know and trust? They can keep working with everyone they know and trust. We can use the same suppliers that they're already using because it's a drop-in replacement. And then we're also making our own relationships so that we can also have you know, an independent supply chain, just in case a fashion brand is smaller, it doesn't have all the influence that maybe like a massive brand does, and we can help still make products there. Yeah, I mean, to use another analogy, I don't know why I love these these analogies, but it it reminds me of like a general contractor that maybe 
has a an electrician relationship, but that electrician doesn't necessarily specialize in installing EV chargers. And so if I make an EV and a charger, then maybe I'm going to also have my own stable of electricians so that if a general contractor wants to, you know, if, a, if an end customer wants to install an EV charger, make it easy because like, hey, you can use yours or you can use mine. But, but you know, we have ones that are great, but it's, but it's whichever way you're more comfortable. Exactly. Yes, yes. We're really trying to build the most flexible supply chain as possible to make it easy to adopt for fashion brands. And where are you in terms of go-to-market and customers and things like that? What stage are you in today? Yeah. So in terms of tech, we're at the lab stage and focusing on scaling up to our first pilot scale sort of production. What that looks like is increasing the scale of our reactor system and um, actually being able to produce more significant amounts of cellulose on a more reliable basis per month you know, by the end of this year. With customers, we have a wait list of about 20 tier one fashion brands who are excited to test our sample materials. And what we're focused on in the next few months is making these sample you know, knit jersey, denim, and satin materials that use the ruby cellulose and can help these fashion brands understand that the performance properties are the same and that it's a material that they want to source to achieve their um, sustainability commitments. We're at a sort of like producing sample stage, scaling up to do some pilots with brands. And just in this month and last month, we actually won and were selected for two accelerators that are run by kind of like this panel of major fashion brands. Uh, One of them is the H&M Global Change Award, which is often called the Nobel Prize of Fashion, which is pretty fun. (laughs) I think the the award ceremony is in the same hall as the Nobel Prize (laughs) banquet or something, which I'm excited about. But basically, H&M is this massive player in the sustainable fashion space that's supporting this award, and we were very honored to receive it and continue working with them. And then the other one is the Fashion for Good Accelerator, which is also run by a panel of incredible brands that uh, we're excited to work with too, like Caring, which is, you know, like Dior and all the luxury brands, Chanel, Target, Bestseller, <laughs> Levi's, and, and more. We're working pretty heavily with brands to test out our tech in the next few months and then continue scaling up to a few pilots and then actually get to commercial scale production sooner than you think. And I think I read you've raised, what, four and a half million to date? Is that right? Yeah. And is that all equity financing? Yes. So, um, well, no, <laughs> we've raised uh, around 4.2 million in equity and then an additional 250K from the National Science Foundation. Uh-huh. Uh, we received a grant from them for our research. Actually, even including this uh, Global Change Award, we also got a 200 euro grant as part of that. So that's another um, grant that's not even included in that 4.5 actually that we just got. Great. And and when you think about staging and phasing, what are you hoping to achieve in the current phase before you think about going out for additional capital? And then what does that next raise look like in terms of size and source? And also what kinds of milestones would you try to get done there? And to the extent you don't know yet or it's subject to change, that's perfectly okay. I'm just, I'm just, and also don't share anything you don't want to share. I'm just trying to get a sense of how a company like this goes to market. And I know our listeners like to understand that as well. Yeah, of course. So with this fundraising, the milestones that we're really excited to hit are really focused on commercialization. So this funding will be used to get past the initial pilot 
stage with, um, you know, some concept garments with, let's say, a handful of fashion brands to actually achieving like some initial constant recurring revenue sort of production for a handful of fashion brands. So it's really focused on commercialization and and proving out that the tech can be um, scalable and fit into the products and supply chains of fashion brands. And then, um, you know, we'll start thinking about the next round of fundraising after that. But this round will uh, really focus on those commercialization milestones. For the next round, we're still defining what it'll look like, but definitely always prioritize strategic partners who see the vision and, and are part of the ecosystem and can really help us achieve this massive global vision that we see even beyond, you know, within fashion and then beyond will probably be <laughs> what that next round is, is focused on, but TBD. And so if you go from, say, lab to pilot scale, would the next round then be about proving that you can deliver similar caliber on a higher volume? Yeah. Like more customers and and more a bigger percentage of of the those customers' production footprints? Totally. So this round covers sort of like our, our pilot facility, getting to some baseline production and, and customers and revenue. And then the next round would focus on continuing to scale that up and develop our tech. So, you know, a demo or a commercial facility, and then, you know, significant R&D to improve different parts of our tech and then start thinking about potential other materials or um, spaces that we want to move into. But actually, maybe not that last part, but definitely the next round would be focused on scaling up our commercial production to larger facilities and be able to serve a much more significant piece of the fashion industry with carbon negative products. So the first of a kind from a uh, manufacturing standpoint, will that get done in this stage or is that the next stage? That's the stage. And then when it comes to scaling that, I would assume that there's some role for debt in some capacity. I, I hope so. I think it could be a really great vehicle for us, um, especially if we already have some significant compelling revenue from the, the pilots that we're running and consistent contracts that we get from that. Um, I think debt could be a really great way to finance further development and also help not dilute the, the company and our employees too much. And when you think about corollaries or role model companies, I mean, is this a playbook that's been proven in the past, either in this industry or in adjacent ones with similar criteria, or are you really blazing new ground? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, I think in terms of this ingredient brand concept that we're trying to build and create, Gore-Tex is another really great example in the fashion industry where they really represent um, materials and performance innovation constantly. And you know, sometimes when you're looking for ski gear or something, you look for Gore-Tex before you even look for any other brand, uh, which I think is really interesting and, and something we're aiming to have a level of engagement similar to with our customers. I think that's a great example in the fashion industry. There's other ingredient brands like Intel and you know, like 3M that I think also represent something important to their customers. And I think Ruby aims to be, yeah, Ruby aims to be a brand that can engage customers and represent like revolutionary sustainability and be a really magnetic brand for this new movement that has been happening pretty significantly with millennials and with Gen Z to demand sustainability and a, a really significant change in the way that industries work. We want to build a community of customers really that we can help serve with the materials that we're creating and create the vision that I think you know, these generations have of what our planet should be. 
and we're excited to to create that. And when it comes to the customer value proposition, you talked about how great it was that they don't have to compromise on performance. And then you said you slipped in something interesting and 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 I it was something to the effect of and eventually cost, um, which which makes me think that that initially there's there's a green premium associated with this. Can you talk a little bit about how big that premium is initially and also where do you want to get to and what the key drivers will be to um, to push down those costs over time and, and uh, get more competitive and ultimately overtake the uh, incumbents? To start out as we're at the small scale and scaling up the system, our costs per kilogram are a little bit more expensive than standard viscose and lyocell. And it really comes from a we're early in our development stage and there are key things that we know that we can uh, really focus on to get that cost actually below the market costs for textiles today. And so we have roadmaps in our technical R&D to focus on that this year and next year and actually become cheaper than than standard textiles. And I think that's a really unique thing that these new technologies like ours that change the way that production works and skip so many like crazy manufacturing steps to just directly produce things can really achieve, you know, become cheaper than the way things today are produced. And what's helpful is that fashion brands, because they are so interested in adopting sustainable technologies, they're actually very willing to partner with new innovations in materials for fashion, accept costs that are higher initially for materials, as long as there is a line of sight to price parity, which we can definitely demonstrate. And so I think that's a great thing that the fashion industry is doing to help support innovations in this space and enable a future that can be planet positive. And uh, we've seen that with our customer partners too. Uh, this next question is a bit of a weird one, but basically, if you weren't climate motivated, it is super hard to build a company. And it's also super hard to build this kind of materials company, climate impact aside. And so you are taking on not only dealing with all those things, but also making sure that you're doing things in a way that from an emissions standpoint is better than existing, which number one means you need to understand how you're doing it, which is in itself hard. And you need to figure out how to monitor and improve it uh, over time and make sure that it, you know, that it stays, you know, at par or below certain thresholds as you go. How do you handle that competency? Does that come in house? Is that service providers or consultants? Is that a blind spot? Like, and also, do you worry that needing two parallel paths with this whole extra competency makes it harder to get the the core competencies right? Given that you know, as a startup, you're spread so thin. Yeah, because we all are. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. <laughs> I mean, I I would have to say that it's so intertwined to the actual product we're creating that it can't be a, a second thought or it can't be separate. Um, the whole reason that this demand is here is because fashion and consumers are demanding you know a carbon negative product, and so being able to understand it, monitor it, report on it. I don't like it almost has to be a core competency. I would say from my background in climate technologies and just being an engineer, I think that has been really helping at least our internal understanding of the footprint in terms of CO2, water and land usage. But definitely there's so many resources out there in terms of published LCAs, uh, life cycle assessments that validate and monitor 
impacts across the board in different like fashion materials and other things. So internally, we use our <laughs> science background, I guess, and then published data. But what's also really important is third-party LCAs. So we absolutely are working with third-party service providers to uh, do sort of like external LCAs of our system and really validate all of the, the metrics constantly. And when you say consumers are demanding it, how, I mean, if I just like go to an e-commerce website or I walk around the mall or I look in a magazine at the advertisements or catalogs or things like that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not seeing which brands have carbon neutral or negative products and and which ones don't or which lines are carbon negative or or which ones aren't. So how how might a consumer even know and what data points are making brands start to feel the heat on this? Like, what are they seeing that, that I'm not seeing? Yeah, today in products, there's not this sort of carbon footprint reporting that consumers are looking at. But I would say that consumers, especially in younger generations like millennials and Gen Z, um, have become a lot more well-versed in the sustainability of different products and materials in general. And there are a lot of studies in fashion specifically and across products in general that look at this changing movement within consumers towards more sustainable goods and towards goods that represent their personal values, where um, actually I think it was concluded in an Ellen MacArthur Foundation report uh, maybe last year that the fashion industry faces about a $60 billion profit reduction if no action is taken on sustainability initiatives. And that all comes from consumer preferences for things that can be sustainable. So all of this polyester, polyester garments, fast fashion, things that are just so clearly creating pollution globally and all this like waste is so forefront in a lot of consumers' minds that it's actually more central than you think. Like fashion really represents identity, I think, uh, which is one of the really interesting things about the industry. And so Fashion has been one of those industries that has been in the crosshairs of the movement for sustainability more so than other industries because it, it represents people's identities. And so you can see it in even just the way consumers engage with brands across social media and different you know, fashion reports. It's, they're seeing the negative impact. They're realizing it. They're not blind to it. And they're demanding action because it's so central to their identity today, like sustainability, planet all of that global warming is is an issue that like everyone knows about now. So you mentioned Gore-Tex as a corollary or a brand that you admire. And I also can't, you didn't mention it, but I can't help but think about like Intel inside, for example, where the Intel chip is inside of laptop made by someone else, but the Intel inside sticker or, you know, little, you know, square on the, on the side of the laptop gives consumers confidence that, that, that it's, you know, that it's going to be fast and strong or yeah so so in your view when the consumer sees the little Gore-Tex on the side of a brand or did back in the day if it if it isn't as relevant now I don't know um how in your mind did it like what did they associate what associations were drawn with them and when they see the little ruby on the side of a of a fashion you know, a piece of apparel for example what associations do you want them to have with, with the ruby brand it's been really uh, interesting to study Gore-Tex and other ingredient brands like Intel. So what I've sort of realized is when a consumer sees a Gore-Tex logo or they're looking for that logo, it's because it represents performance and innovation. 
So they know that by choosing a Gore-Tex, uh, and, and I keep bringing up ski examples because I ski a lot, <laughs> like a Gore-Tex glove or something. I know it's going to be high performance, probably one of the best ones I can get. I don't need to worry about my hands getting cold or anything like that. Or It's like uh, pol- polarized sunglasses is another one. Yeah. <laughs> like polarized, right? It's like- <laughs> totally. It's like nice. <laughs> my eyes will be protected. <laughs> yeah, it just represents like, I know the performance quality it's going to have. Gore-Tex is constantly innovating. So it's a brand that, um, you know, throughout years, I can consistently keep choosing because they're really good at this stuff, (laughs) for example. Um, And then what we aim to be as an ingredient brand for Ruby is um, when you see, actually not even when you see like a garment made with Ruby, we want our consumers to look for garments made with Ruby and like choose based on that. But it's not even like a, a sort of decision. It's like, obviously, I'm going to find the uh, Ruby article because it's the same performance, but it's dramatically planet positive and in line with my values. And we don't want it to be this whole like thing where like we push uh, sort of like pessimistic climate stuff onto consumers, like you better choose this, otherwise you're a bad person or something. It's more of like, we want to make this an easy choice that we can all be part of the positive change, you know, all of your clothes that the brands you love, we can make it with Ruby textile and, and you can be part of reversing climate change. Organic fruit. Maybe that's a, another example, right? Like, oh, it's organic. It's, it's better for me. It's, it's, you know, it's made, it's made locally or yeah. I mean, I'm totally, uh, yeah. Ruby, we hope it represents radical sustainability. It represents honesty um, and authenticity in terms of what we're building and and building something symbiotic with the planet. When they see it, they know it's something that's going to have a positive impact on the planet. So, I mean, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but brand halo is a big motivator for these early brands. Is that a fair statement? Uh, What do you mean by that? Uh, Hey, look at our stuff and how much better it is um, versus like... uh, a net zero commitment or a mandate or, uh, you know, it, it, it's not coming from an accounting mindset. It's coming from a branding mindset of wanting to be able to showcase that they're on the forefront and taking a leadership position. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely fair. Okay. So how far do you think that can take you and how important are the heavy hands of government, for example, in helping move along your customers to act, not necessarily your initial pilot customers, but if you want to get to a 50, 100, 500 million, like publicly traded company someday? I think it it has been and will be a mix between customer sentiment that just happens organically, like movement, uh, government action and policy, and then brands that are taking action uh, independently because they see the consumer sentiment. Five years ago or 10 years ago, this business would not really work because the pressure from consumers and from governments on brands wasn't there. And so brands, there wasn't really a reason to serve this need. Uh, what we've seen, and most recently by, I think the New York, New York is considering a bill in New York City that it, uh, requires that any fashion brand who sells in New York City has carbon neutrality targets or, or something like that has sustainability targets, which is incredible to see. And there's been things like that across the supply chain for fashion increasing over the last five years and a lot more information available to the public, like with the Paris Climate Accord and all these IPCC reports and uh, more pressure from both governments and consumers. 
I do think that most of the excitement and engagement is coming from customers. And I think government is supporting that. So I think it's both. (laughs) What are the biggest risks or unknowns in terms of scaling Ruby and your ultimate success? Totally. Well, I think scaling our technology is, it's based on some foundations across different industries, but at the end of the day, it's really new. We're building a system of cell-free enzymes that are stabilized to work outside of cells and outside of organisms. And we're scaling that up to massive scales, which hasn't really been done before. It's a really unique and innovative concept that can have a massive impact like we've been talking about, but it's going to be challenging. We're developing all those systems ourselves and building as we go. There are foundations across fermentation and also enzyme uh, production and processes that use enzymes, like the food and beverage industry at a massive scale that we have as foundations to stand on. But at the end of the day, the scale up of a completely new system is going to be a big challenge for us. But we feel really confident that we are building the right team to do it and, and people like a passion behind it. And now stepping outside of Ruby, what are the biggest blockers or risks outside of your control? So I'll I'll stop there. And then I have a follow-up question, but I'll save that one. I think what we're seeing is that there are a growing number and a significant number of the most massive fashion brands having these sustainability commitments and um, really trying to adopt new technologies to hit them. I think there is a challenge sort of just from the market in terms of these brands can be sort of slow moving and some of them can be sort of traditional in that they don't think sustainability will sell or I don't know, maybe less on the pulse of the need across sustainability. I think it's a it's a minority, honestly, but in terms of the movement of fashion brands to adopt new things, if you don't build the supply chain to make it really easy to do it, I think it can be a challenge. There's a lot of people you need to align across the network of suppliers and and all that, which is why at Ruby, we're just so focused on making this as easy to adopt as possible, building our own supply chains and really targeting brands that, you know, these major brands that are taking action already on sustainability. And then they can be the initial tidal wave that helps move the rest of the brands to realize that if they don't have sustainability goals or don't take action, they're not going to be a business in like 10 years. And if you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your progress with Ruby, what would you change and how would you change it? I honestly think that one thing that I, I would, one thing that I would definitely try and change that could really help catalyze our success is in the investment community, more attention to the problem and, um, And honestly, a little bit more diversity in the investment community. I think we faced a lot of challenges as a team of young female scientists, plus entering an industry like fashion that hasn't been the main focus of climate and science traditionally, even though it's the third most polluting supply chain on the planet. And I think that we found the right investment partners and and people who really see the problem and believe in the founding team and what we're doing. but. I think it's something that I've, it's not only been us, I've heard it from so many other founders of diverse backgrounds or in fields that maybe are less traditionally like male dominated, that there has been some difficulty like getting funding and um, building something that can have a huge climate impact. I, I think that would be something to definitely to change about climate, to be more 
diverse. And like you mentioned, it's it's a global problem and we really need like a, a really global minded, diverse investment sources to to tackle it and focus on the right problems. And for anyone who's listening, who is inspired about what you're working on, who do you want to hear from, if anybody, and how can we be helpful to you, if at all? Yes, we love community. And, and definitely, if Ruby resonates with you, reach out, follow us, you know, join this journey that we're building. Uh, we're also hiring aggressively across um, science and engineering. So um, if you have that background and you want to put it to use in a, in a cool, fun startup that's trying to change the world, definitely reach out to us and come join the team. We are a fun <laughs> group of people over in San Leandro in the East Bay of San Francisco Bay Area. And so definitely looking for people who want to join our mission, both in the community and as an actual team, team member. And Nika, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? No, I think I think this was great. It's great to speak with you about our mission and, and really start to share it with the world. Please follow us. And uh, we're excited to continue pushing forward planet-positive supply chains and create symbiotic production. So join us. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks again, Nika, and best of luck to you and the whole Ruby team. We'll be watching for sure. And also let us know if we can support you in any way as well along the way, because what you're doing is important. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.